This is the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates Radio Program. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Glad you decided to listen in today. Hey, joining me in segments two and three of today's program is returning guest, Mr. Michael Oliver. Many of you may recognize Mr. Oliver as the founder of Momentum Structural Analysis. His uh, analysis in the past of various markets has been spot on, so I know you're going to appreciate my conversation with him as well. You know, if you've not yet requested uh, my best-selling book from last year, Revenue Sourcing, I'd like to send you a copy. It gives you strategies to consider for your own financial situation, given the current economic environment. And I'd be glad to send you a copy. All you need to do is visit MyRevenueSourcingBook.com, MyRevenueSourcingBook.com, and uh, just let me know where to mail that to you, and I will be very glad to do so. I want to begin this week's program by just asking you a simple question. Does the name Michael Burry ring a bell with you? Well, Mr. Burry has an interesting background. He is a physician by training, but while he was in his medical residency training, he became obsessed with financial investing. As a result, he didn't finish his residency. Instead, he left the medical profession to start a hedge fund. You have to assume his parents were very proud. Well, Mr. Burry got out of the chute very quickly. He, he developed a reputation for his ability to pick stocks based on value, much in the same vein as Warren Buffett and Warren Buffett, Buffett's mentor, Benjamin Graham. Burry's hedge fund, Skyon Capital, finished 2001 up 55%. The same year, the S&P 500 dropped 11.8%. He beat the market by more than 65%. Now, how did he do that? Well, he got those returns by shorting internet stocks. Now, if you're not familiar with a short trade, when you're taking the short side of an investment, you make money as the investment declines in value. So it's exactly the opposite of the way many of you may think about investing. Well, the next year, 2002, the S&P 500 fell 22.1%. But Mr. Burry had another good year. He was up 16%. In 2003, the overall stock market turned around, as many of you probably remember. The market rallied nearly 29% that year, but Burry and Skyon Capital was up about 50%. Now, with that background, the name Michael Burry and Skyon Capital may ring a bell if you've ever seen the movie The Big Short. Because in 2005, Mr. Burry started to study the housing market, and he noticed that there were a lot of high-risk subprime loans outstanding, and that made the market extremely unstable. He also noticed that a lot of these subprime loans had adjustable interest rates. So if interest rates went up, he anticipated that the housing market would collapse. So Mr. Burry decided that he would create something called a credit default swap market. What that allowed him to do was bet against or short mortgage-backed securities. So if this market blew up or collapsed, he would make money. Now, the backstory, and if you haven't seen the movie The Big Short, I would encourage you to do that. 
is that he bet over a billion dollars of his hedge fund's money on the in this credit default swap market, betting that the subprime mortgage market would collapse. Well, commercial banks and investment companies took the other side of that bet, and Mr. Burry's hedge fund had to pay monthly premiums that were pretty significant. And some of his clients, in fact, his main client, uh, and this is in the movie The Big Short, Mr. Lawrence Fields, told Burry that he was wasting capital. Get out of this. But Burry said no. Well, Lawrence Fields decides to sue Burry, but during this whole process, Burry's bet paid off. The subprime mortgage market collapsed, as you all know. And Burry's fund value increased by 489%, which amounted to $2.69 billion. And Mr. Fields, the man who was suing Burry, walked away with $489 million. Now, I tell you that because Mr. Burry reopened his hedge fund in 2013. I should point out that in 2008, Burry closed his fund and just said, look, I've made a lot of money. I'm just going to manage my own money. But now the hedge fund is open again. As a side note, he is short Tesla stock. He's expecting the price of Tesla stock to fall. And what really I wanted to talk to you about today is what Mr. Burry says about today's market. There was an article last week that reported that Mr. Burry, it was last Tuesday, so about a week ago, warned of the biggest bubble in history. He suggested that this market is based on rampant speculation. And he said, people always ask me what's going on in the markets. And this was via Mr. Burry's Twitter account. He said, it is simple. Greatest speculative bubble of all time in all things by two orders of magnitude. And the hashtag was Flying Pigs 360. Well, that hashtag was likely a reference to a famous saying in investing that bulls make money, bears make money, but pigs get slaughtered. So Mr. Burry is expecting a collapse in the market. And given his track record, I would encourage you to pay attention. I have for a very long time talked about the fact that we are going to see inflation followed by deflation, and that's why the management principles outlined in the Revenue Sourcing book, and if you're just joining me, I'd be glad to send you a complimentary copy of the book. All you have to do is visit MyRevenueSourcingBook.com and let me know where to mail your copy of the book, and I'll be very glad to do so. Again, the website is MyRevenueSourcingBook.com. The book gives you some strategies to protect yourself from a bubble that bursts, but also to protect yourself from inflation that is now obviously emerging. Now, Mr. Burry was very active on Twitter until he shut down his account for 10 weeks, and now he is back on Twitter again. But interestingly, Mr. Burry was tweeting excerpts from a book written by Jens O. Parson, who wrote a book called Dying of Money, Lessons of the Great German and American Inflations. Now, I'm going to talk about this more in the last segment of today's program as well. 
But Mr. Parson, in his book, and Mr. Burry, quoting Mr. Parson on Twitter, made some interesting points. And I think that when you look at the description of what happened in Weimar, Germany, and compare it to what we're seeing now, there are many similarities. Now, am I suggesting that the dollar, the dollar's failure is imminent? No, no, I am not. I just think that there is enough similarities here that uh, doing things the way you've always done them might not lead to the same outcome and might not lead to the outcome that you're expecting. Here's a tweet, which is a requote from Parsons' book. The life of the inflation in its ripening stage was a paradox which had its own unmistakable characteristics. One was the great wealth, at least of those favored by the boom. Many great fortunes sprang up overnight. The cities had aimless and wanton youth. That quote really describes a wealth gap. Many people on the top end of the spectrum in Weimar, Germany, got extremely wealthy. And at the same time, those at the bottom end of the income spectrum uh, really had it very rough. And certainly there's uh, no doubt that that's what we're seeing here today. You've got many people at the top end of the earnings spectrum getting wealthy. Over the lockdowns last year, the billionaires got much richer and it was a lot tougher for those in the bottom quintile of the earnings spectrum to make ends meet. In fact, as I reported on last week's program, uh, about one in four Americans now are struggling just to pay for their housing and pay for their food. And as, he, as inflation now kicks in, it takes a greater percentage of discretionary income on the lower end of the spectrum just to meet basic needs than it does on the higher end of the spectrum. So that's why money creation actually creates, if you will, or, or helps create the wealth gap. Now, I'm just about out of time for this segment, so let me again close by just saying that if you've not yet gotten your copy of the Revenue Sourcing Book, I'd be glad to send you a copy. Go to myrevenuesourcingbook.com and let me know where to mail the book. The book contains some strategies to consider in this environment. Again, the website, myrevenuesourcingbook.com. I'll be back after these words with Mr. Michael Oliver. Welcome back to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Joining me once again on today's program is returning guest, Michael Oliver. Uh, longtime listeners may remember that uh, Michael was a guest on the program about six months ago. He is the founder of Momentum Structural Analysis. His website is olivermsa.com. The website, again, is olivermsa.com. I'll give that website again before this segment is over. And, Michael, welcome back to the program. Good to be back, Dennis. So, Michael, let's talk a bit about your work. Uh, when we talked six months ago, I was fascinated by the fact that you really take into account something that not many analysts do, and that is the fact that all these markets are measured in fiat currencies, and that value is not constant. Can you expand on that? Sure. Well, you know, we, we knew that decades ago when we started uh, MSA. Um, I had been a futures broker in 1975 when gold got legalized. I was worked for the uh, E.F. Hutton's Commodity Division in New York, their headquarters, and I was a gold specialist. And um, 
I got out of the future side in 92 because I was uh, solicited by a major bank in the United States who heard about my work and su- suggested that I provide it to them, you know, in, in research form. And uh, I agreed and I shifted over to analysis of, of markets, so all four asset categories, you know, the debt markets, stock market, commodity markets, and currencies. Uh, have provided research to institutions up through about 2015, and then we expanded to open to all investors who might want to subscribe, individuals and so forth. Uh, our methodology uh, is based on that premise that you just said. One, when you look to the left on your stock chart that you're following, or a commodity, or whatever you're looking at, there's a price. Well, that price is a swinging variable. Sometimes it could be fairly stable, but in, in the last 50 years in the United States, for example, the M2 money supply has advanced, has grown in, in quantity every decade by almost double, actually 90 some odd percent increase every decade. Even, you know, good times, bad times, it you know, almost doubles every decade. So factor that into the, you know, let's say you own a stock at 30 bucks and Two, two years later, it's 35. You think you're making money? You know, on a percentage basis, yeah, nominally but measured by the euro or the dollar, whatever your unit of measure is, uh, the number's going up, but you're really not making money, especially now in the current environment where monetary expansion has gone totally off the page. And it's, it's a policy in effect, and I doubt it's going to change despite all this uh, bantering back and forth that it might, which means that the money unit you're measuring your assets by You've got to factor that in. Uh, in fact, Ray Dalio, who's not a gold bug, major asset manager, major hedge fund manager, said several months ago, he says, investors need to pay less attention to the price of their stock than they need to pay. They need to pay more attention to the value of their money. He meant the, the degradation of the money unit by monetary expansion. So even he is recognizing that uh, it's a distorted way to measure things. Well, how do you get around that? You can't totally get around it. So what we did is this. Instead of just looking at a price chart, which everybody does, of course, we measure price in its relationship to certain means or long or averages, long-term average going down to short-term, but especially emphasis on longer-term. Why do we do that? Well, if you run a moving average, let's say a 36-month average, like a three-year average of, let's say, a stock, that 36-month average is, is, is changes by the, primarily by the dynamics of the underlying stock. In other words, if the stock is going up sharply, then that average is going to start going up sharply as well. And the rate of change in that average, the thing you are measuring against, uh, will reflect more the actions of the stock than it will just the money unit on the left side of the price scale. So, yes, price is still a factor, obviously, but we've diluted it by... Uh, measuring against a mean. And when we measure a market, plot it just like a price chart. You measure it versus a moving average. You're not just laying the moving average over the price chart like everybody does. You can see it in the Wall Street Journal, for example. They have the Dow, NASDAQ, S&P, and they have the 65-day and the 200-day averages. What we do is we oscillate it in relationship to, let's say, a a 36-month average or a three-quarter average, meaning where is this month's high price in its relationship to that, let's say, three-quarter moving average. It's X number of percent above. Where's this month's low? We plot it accordingly. So we end up with a chart that looks like a price chart, but it's reflective of 
the changes in the stock and its relation to its own means, its own averages. So we get a different visual technical picture. Hope that wasn't too complicated. <laughs> uh, so when you look at a price chart, you see one thing. When you look at the price converted to a momentum chart, you see other things. Often you will see clearer trends. You'll see levels that you don't want to break below if you own the stock because the momentum is breaking down through something. And it might not even show up when you look at the price chart. So price everybody's looking at means if everybody does it, it's got to be wrong, right? <laughs> uh, the, exactly. But when you look at momentum, it gives you a different visual picture, and it usually will warn you. I would say 90% of the time, it's going to warn you ahead of time of trend changes of significance that might be about to occur in the underlying asset. So that's an explanation of what we do and how we sort of avoid to some extent, as much as we can, measuring simply by a fiat currency. Well, my guest today is Mr. Michael Oliver. He is the founder of Momentum Structural Analysis. The website is olivermsa.com. And you know, Michael, as you were talking, I was reminded of an article that a uh, past guest here on the program, Alistair McLeod, wrote this past week. And I don't recall the exact numbers, but uh, his point was really much the same as the point you just made, that really since the U.S. dollar became a fiat currency back in 1971, much of the gains in the overall stock indices can be attributed just to the devaluation of the currency rather than, you know, companies growing their earnings and, and strong fundamentals. Would you agree with that? Yes, I would. Uh, but that it doesn't it doesn't uh, fall evenly in all markets at all times, that factor. Uh, what really is a dominant factor in our view is investor preferences. And those change over time and sometimes they're herd like, you know, excessively bullish. Sometimes they moderate, sometimes they're excessively bearish, but investor preference shifts occur constantly. Now, they don't occur every other day, but I'm talking about over a period of 10 or 20 years, you can often look at charts of, let's say, the uh, S&P 500 and look at the same time back in the, let's say, the early to late 1970s through 1980, where the stock market went literally sideways. It was a wasteland up and down, up and down, but went nowhere, while commodities as an asset category and gold led it soared. Okay? So that, at that period of time, with monetary inflation coming, and in, in fact came big time in the late 1970s, less, less big time than now, by the way, uh, the investors shifted their preference to commodity-related assets, and they were right. Uh, and then that shift went away. Now, for example, let's go back to 2011. Both the S&P and gold were rising during that period of time. But gold was beating the S&P, but at that time, investors liked both of them. But gold peaked in 2011, and what did it do between then 2015-16? It dropped 50% almost. What did the S&P do? It continued to advance. Again, an investor preference shift. We've had 12 years now, looking at S&P charts since early 2009, of basically vertical action with some ledges and drops and so forth, but basically an unusual length of time for the stock market to be rising so steeply, while commodities from 2011, at least through 2020, went sideways. Again, investor preference shift. We're now at a point where it's excessive, where you can look at the S&P chart and see, uh, yes, there's been a reward, but boy, the risk has really increased. And a lot of asset managers realize that, and we're starting to see the evidence of them shifting portions of their assets under management into commodity or commodity-related assets, like 
let's say, in agriculture, you don't want to buy soybeans, but you buy fertilizer stocks. They've done quite well. Uh, in, the, in the energy sector, you don't buy oil futures. You buy oil-related stocks, oil services, oil exploration, and so forth. They've done extremely well. Um, and so that kind of shift is going on, and we can measure it. You don't necessarily see it overtly on the price charts because that S&P is still making new highs. But if you'll notice, it's slowing, slowing dramatically over the last several months in particular, uh, whereas commodities are definitely soaring. So we think we're in the early phase, let's say in the first year right now, of the shift toward commodities and out of stocks. And we think that'll be a little more obvious, especially when we get into next quarter in terms of seeing the stock market go down. And the commodities not reflect that. So, Michael, I'm just curious uh, if you analyze the U.S. dollar in and of itself, and what's your opinion as to how this excessive money creation ends, or does it take a, a reset type event in your view? Uh, yeah, we're looking for a reset, but we're looking for one that's not incremental. In other words, we're looking for something that chaos theorists would uh, appreciate, and that is that a lot of trends go from A to Z, top of the page to bottom of the page or bottom to the top, either way, uh, in an incremental measured way. Uh, we think that it started that way, upside in commodities, for example, or downside in the dollar. Uh, but it will, if we, if we reach a crisis, which we think we will, probably in the next year and a half, I'm not looking out five years, I think that we're going to get faster than people think, uh, where a lot of events that we're going to go from A to Z will do it more rapidly than anybody thought. And the dollar is one of those because if you look at a dollar chart, dollar index, for example, or you can do the same with the euro, go back about 10 years and you'll find on the euro that there were a couple lows at around a dollar 23 level. Then you broke down below that. And then you spent the last five or so years bumping up against that level from the underside. So there's a balance point on the euro around the dollar 23. If you can clear right now, we're above 121. If you can clear dollar 23, we think euro is going to soar out of this hole, not just crawl out of it. Reverse it for the dollar. If you look at a dollar index chart, go back to 1990. You can draw a line across highs that existed back then at around the 89 level dollar index again. Well, where have the lows been the last few years? 88 and change and 89 and change. So we're trying to hold around where those old highs were. It's our view, the dollar index right now is just above 90. Um, if you trade 89 on the cash dollar index, we think it will slump right on through this stuff. And if you look at those two currencies, the two major currencies in the world, they have been extremely sedate and quiet for since at least 2015. Dollar's been stuck in about 11% range, up and down, up and down. That is extremely narrow for that period of time. Same with the euro. What I'm saying is that this major asset class category, foreign exchange, the major currencies, have been extremely quiet. And you know what they say, you ought to watch out for the quiet one. <laughs> the guy in the corner, okay? These guys, if they hit those numbers, 123 on the euro above, 89 on the dollar index below, they're going to speed up and suddenly you're going to inject volatility into foreign exchange, which will have wave effects on other asset categories. Well, my guest today is Mr. Michael Oliver. He is the founder of Momentum Structural Analysis, 
I would encourage you to check out his work at OliverMSA.com. The website, again, is OliverMSA.com. And I'll continue my conversation with Michael when RLA Radio returns. Welcome back to RLA Radio. I'm Dennis Tubergen. My guest today is Mr. Michael Oliver. Michael is the founder of Momentum Structural Analysis. He is, his website is OliverMSA.com. The website, again, is OliverMSA.com. And Oliver is O-L-I-V-E-R. So OliverMSA.com. I'd encourage you to check it out. So, Michael, we ended the last segment by uh, you stating that you're really expecting a chaos event. Um, so given that that is your outlook, uh, in, in chaos, there's obviously losers, but there are also opportunities. So where do you see the opportunities moving ahead? Well, we, uh, as far as the commodity category, which is, we think is the place to be connected. Uh, and we realize most investors don't buy futures. Okay. So you, you don't go directly to the commodity itself. Uh, there are stocks that reflect what commodities have been through for the last 10 years, namely a lot of downside pressure and then just laying in the, in the mud for five years uh, at a low level, uh, not really collapsing much anymore, but just not going up. Uh, and back in November is basically when we pushed the, the, the green button on commodity and commodity related. And since then, we've seen things like soybeans go from $9 to 16 and so forth, uh, copper, uh, oil, uh, we got bullish on it at 40, it's now 72, um, et cetera. Well, rather than buying the, the commodity futures, there are stocks that are related, obviously. Like in the gold area with gold and silver, you have gold and silver miners, which we emphasize, by the way, over the metals uh, in terms of likely outperformance. Uh, in the, let's say, the grain area, you look at fertilizer stocks, uh, you could basically throw a dart at them and look at where they were about six, nine months ago and look at where they are now. Dramatic move, but it's just the beginning. Uh, let's say in oil, you don't want to buy oil futures. Well, look at some of the oil-related stocks. And not necessarily the big names like Exxon, but uh, oil exploration uh, ETF is uh, oil and gas exploration. XOP is an ETF containing stocks related to the oil sector. Uh, or OIH is oil services ETF. Those symbols, since we got bullish, have basically doubled in the last six, seven months. And it's only the beginning, because if you look at their charts, even just the price chart, you can see that, gee, it was a double, but they're still at the bottom end of their historic pages of price going back a decade or so. So they've got a long way to go, and we don't think it's temporary, which is a popular term applied to inflation now. Uh, it is partly an effect of Fed monetary policy seeking a new place to go. All that money has to go somewhere. And an effect of the asset managers, again, preferring not to put it so much into things that have already gone up for a dozen years, but things that have gone down for six, seven, eight years that are cheap and aren't going to zero. Uh, so you're getting an investor uh, preference shift there. But it's been herd-like in the commodities. So <clears throat> it's not exactly fundamental of a given market that caused oil to go up, let's say, or copper to go up. Uh, I know a lot of people, there's a Wall Street Journal article today talking about how the, the green movement and the direction thereof is, uh, might cause oil supplies to be tight. Uh, we can understand that. 
But it's so coincident that they all turned at the same time, basically, uh, when Powell pushed the button. So it's a, it's a category change in trend. And you want to look at stocks that are related to these commodities. Uh, the ones I've listed, there's plenty more. And uranium, for example, is a futures contract. It's illiquid. can't even trade it. But there are a lot of uranium stocks that are doing quite well and coming up off of, you know, effectively theoretical zero levels. Uh, so there's a lot of opportunities out there. But we emphasize that while all those things are turning up, and freshly so, uh, you can pick and choose among those categories, but highly likely when this is all over, when we reach that crisis point, that the better performers will have been gold and silver miners than gold and silver, and then the rest of the commodity complex behind that. This was also true back in the late 1970s, 1980 bull market. Commodities soared, but gold outpaced them, and gold led them. Uh, so I think that's, it's a monetary event primarily that's driving this situation. It's not so much the, quote, tight supplies in the commodities. Yes, that's true in many cases, but it's really a monetary event. And it's, uh, we don't think it's going to go away. Why do we not think the Fed is going to taper in any sincere way? Stock market. That's an asset category that they want to defend. Ben Bernanke wrote a paper on it in 2003, why the Fed should view the stock market as a, as a policy uh, intent to continue to keep it looking good. Why? <clears throat> because he said we need people to spend, not save. And when they spend, it helps the economy get better, he said, and we need to encourage that by uh, you know, helping the stock market. So it's, though it's not listed in their list of job descriptions, uh, it is a, a focus point. Well, the stock market has not been a problem for them, at least for the last nine months. It was during March of last year, but since then it's gone vertical. So it's not been a negative factor that they've had to deal with. It's our view that the stock market is highly likely making a top right now, and that by sometime, probably in the early part of the next quarter, it will become more evident. If that becomes a factor on the downside, then the Fed will have even more pressure at its back to maintain the monetary policy it's got now, because they'll need to defend the stock market. And so that's one reason we don't think that tapering is going to happen. Uh, you might hear talk of it, but I don't think it'll actually go into effect if we're correct on the stock market, and I think we are. Well, and Michael, when you look at the, the, the talk that's going on now, there, there is some talk uh, that uh, some members of the Federal Reserve Board are out there saying that, hey, we, need, we do need to taper. But, um, you know, assuming that that doesn't happen, and I, I would agree with that, um, what's your forecast for stocks? How low do you think stocks go, and will the Fed be able to intervene at some point successfully? Well, you know, their type of intervention, now the Bank of Japan is different. They literally buy ETFs and stocks, and of course the Fed's been doing that too as well. They've been buying uh, a junk bond, corporate junk bond ETFs uh, last year, and uh, I don't know whether they're still doing it, but they were outright buyers in the market. Um, but I, I think it will cause them to maintain their policy of easy money, because if they threaten to tighten because of commodities rising, that will spook the stock market. And another sector we're watching closely is the bank sector. Uh, it's not a high topic of conversation right now. Tech has been in other, other areas, healthcare stocks and so forth. But the bank sector is extremely weak on a relative basis to the S&P. If you go back 10 or so years, you'll see that you know, when banks collapsed in the 2008-2009 debacle, they dropped in relative performance by an enormous amount. 
And when they hit the 2009 low, just as the markets turned up in price, that relative performance of banks stabilized. But it stabilized almost flatlined to the side. And then uh, two times since then, we've taken out the 2009 low of the relative performance, now I'm talking about not the price lows, of where, how banks as a sector stand versus the S&P. We collapsed the bank spread versus the S&P over the last six months and to new lows below that of 2009, meaning the relative ranking of banks as a percent of the price of the S&P is far lower than it was in 2009. What does that say? So we're keen on watching the bank sector, which is not a real hot topic right now, but it's looking very weak. In fact, it's been weak this month pretty much while the S&P has gone up. So we're watching the stock market out of our side mirrors because we know if it topples, and I don't mean drops 30% in three weeks, crash like event. I don't think that's going to happen. Most bear markets, when they unfold, they unfold in a layered steady, declining manner where there is no crash. The only time we ever began a bear market in the U.S. with a crash was 1929. No other bear market began that way or even produced a crash during the process. Uh, we got close to one late in 2008, but that really wasn't of crash dimensions. Uh, but we're looking for a layered decline, but the kind of thing that would turn the Fed's head. Uh, for instance, if you get the S&P 10 or 15% off its high, even if you do it fairly quietly, that's going to start to spook people, and the Fed too. So that's what we'd be watching. So, Michael, uh, last question for you. You mentioned that it was your view that gold and silver will probably outperform um, any other commodity if, if we want to talk about gold and silver as commodities. Hmm. What's your preference between gold and silver? Do you have one? Yes, I do. Uh, silver's vastly underperformed gold since the 2011 high. You know, when silver was up near 50 <clears throat> for the second time in its history, it was there in 1980, and, and gold was at 1911. And they both turned down, gold turned down uh, short of 50%, silver turned down much more. It went down to 10, 11 bucks at one point. Uh, so on a relative performance basis, it has underperformed. But that changed last summer when silver broke out via our annual momentum structures. It broke out to the upside last July at a price of $19.48. Within three weeks, it was $10 above there. There was a 50% gain in three weeks when it broke out. Well, at that point that its price surged, its spread relationship to gold also broke out, breaking the backbone of its downtrend in performance that had been underway since 2011. So now silver is an outperformer to gold when you measure month to month and so forth. Don't, don't pay attention day to day. But we think it will continue to be an outperformer. And we also think that when you look at the miners, gold or silver, you probably would do better um, buying a bunch of uh, silver miners as opposed to gold miners uh, on a percentage gain basis. We think silver is vastly undervalued. And uh, our bet is the following. If silver comes up out of this recent range of action, which has basically been $29 on down, it's spiked up over 30 briefly, 29 to 22 between last summer's high and the, and the low in September last year, Right now, we're trading either side of 28. Uh, come out of this range, and we think it's going to do it soon, and get it back up above 30, that it's going to move rapidly toward those old two highs it made. In 1980 and in 2011, it was a 50 bucks. That will be the third time, if it gets there, it'll be the third time it's been there in history. We think that is going to be a triple top breakout. And we think silver will gain value such that it reflects what gold has done over the last 
40 years or so, where gold at each of its peaks makes new highs. If silver would reflect gold even at its current value, such that it was reflecting what was going on back in the mid-1970s, silver would be about $200 an ounce right now. And it wouldn't surprise us that we go there. And that if we go there, we go there rapidly. Look at a Bitcoin chart, for example, between mid-year last year and January, February of this year, in terms of percentage gain. It wouldn't shock us that silver becomes the next, over the next 9 to 12 months, the next Bitcoin in terms of upside panic. So we'd emphasize silver. Well, we're going to have to leave it there, according to the clock. My guest today has been Mr. Michael Oliver. He is the founder of Momentum Structural Analysis. I would encourage you to check out his work. Uh, I've been fascinated by it since I met Michael. Uh, the website is olivermsa.com. The website, again, is olivermsa.com. And, Michael, thanks for joining us on today's program. and love to have you back down the road and very much enjoy your work and your perspective. Uh, thank you much, Dennis. We'll see you, you then. Yeah, we will return after these words. listening to the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates radio program. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. And thanks again to Mr. Michael Oliver for joining us on today's program. In the first segment today, I talked about what Mr. Michael Burry, who was featured in the movie The Big Short, has been saying about the current situation in the financial markets. He tweeted... People always ask me what's going on in the markets. It's simple. Greatest speculative bubble of all time in all things by two orders of magnitude. And then over a period of time, Mr. Burry retweeted excerpts from a book titled Dying of Money, Lessons of the Great German and American Inflations. And in this segment, I want to share with you just three of those excerpts from that book and I want to draw some similarities to what happened in Weimar, Germany, to where we are today. Now, interestingly, I'll start with this quote. Germany's inflation cycle really ran over nine years. It gestated for eight years and then collapsed over one year. So as we've talked about in the past, inflation, if it's not brought under control accelerates to the point that a hyperinflationary event happens very, very quickly. Now, let me get to some of these quotes from Mr. Parsons' book. And again, he's referring to Weimar Germany here. Accounts of the time tell of a progressive demoralization, which crept over the common people, compounded of their weariness with a breakneck pace to no visible purpose, and their fears from watching their own precarious position slip while others grew so conspicuously rich. In the first segment, I talked about the wealth gap that is certainly obvious when you look around. However, when you take a look at super yachts, that gives you a pretty good idea of what the mega rich are doing and how much money the mega rich really have. Now, there was an interesting article that was published that outlined the 10 most expensive yachts in the world. 
And there are three yachts now that are over $1 billion. The first is a yacht titled The Streets of Monaco. It's a 509-foot mega yacht, and it features miniature versions of some of Monaco's and Monte Carlo's most renowned landmarks. It's got a go-kart circuit, three swimming pools, a mini submarine, a helipad, seven guest suites, a mini waterfall, and a restaurant with an underwater view. There's also a yacht called the Eclipse. $1.5 billion is the price tag. It's owned by a gentleman by the name of Roman Abramovich. Abramovich, rather. He's got a private defense system built into his yacht. That includes missile detection sensors, intruder alarms, and armor plating and bulletproof windows in his master bedroom. And, of course, he's got the routine two helipads, two swimming pools, 24 guest bedrooms, a disco hall, and a mini submarine. The yacht at the top of the list, though, has an amazing price tag, $4.8 billion. The name of the yacht is History Supreme. It's 100 feet long, but it's built from 10,000 kilograms of solid gold and platinum. That's how you know you have a lot of money. And incidentally, the History Supreme yacht, valued at nearly $5 billion, has a genuine Tyrannosaurus Rex bone statue and a wall made entirely of meteorite rocks. So certainly... That mimics what happened in Weimar, Germany, just when you take a look at that one example. Now, another example is that, and I guess this is a quote again from Mr. Parsons' book, almost any kind of business could make money. Business failures and bankruptcies became few. This was during the inflationary buildup in Weimar, Germany. The boom suspended the normal processes of natural selection by which the non-essential and ineffective otherwise would have been called out. There was an article published on MSN earlier this year, originally actually published by the Motley Fool staff, talking about zombie companies. I'm going to give you just a bit from that article. So-called zombie companies, firms that are in debt to the point of needing bailouts to survive, has been rising steadily in numbers since the 90s. What keeps these zombie companies semi alive? Well, in two words, the Fed. Without the Federal Reserve purchasing corporate bonds and allowing these failing companies to access credit, these companies would have likely already failed. The Fed is printing money and buying corporate bonds and keeping these zombie companies alive. Very similar to what happened in Weimar, Germany. And then finally, let's talk about the wealth gap again. Side by side, and this is a quote again from Mr. Parsons' book, side by side with the wealth were the pockets of poverty. In other words, wealth and poverty coexisted. Greater numbers of people remained on the outside of the easy money, looking in but not able to enter. The crime rate soared. Well, if you've been paying attention, uh, the crime rate is soaring in many different parts of the country, in almost all parts of the country, actually. And there was an article published by MSN that talks about the fact that homicides and other violent crimes are increasing. And I'll give you just a bit from the article. 
As the U.S. enters the new post-pandemic reality, cities across the country are dealing with a surge in homicides and other violent crimes, including a rash of mass shootings, with some officials fearing the worst is yet to come. Miami police chief said this, the spike in homicides and non-fatal shootings is extremely alarming. One of the reasons we talk about a bloody summer ahead for our country is because it's already been a very bloody year, a very deadly year for Americans. And it goes on to quote some crime data. So when you take just a snapshot of the conditions that existed during during the inflationary buildup in Weimar, Germany, and compare it to what's going on today, you get some rather scary similarities. Now, I would urge you to educate yourself, as I often say here on the program, no one cares as much about your money as you do. And to that end, I'm just offering today the Revenue Sourcing Book, which is a book that offers some strategies for managing your money in the post-pandemic economy. If you'd like me to send you a complimentary copy of the book, I'd be glad to do so. Visit the website, MyRevenueSourcingBook.com. MyRevenueSourcingBook.com is the website. And if you're not yet using the RLA app, go to the App Store on your smartphone, search for Your RLA, that's Y-O-U-R-R-L-A, and you can get the app for free and get access to all of our free educational resources. That's my program for this week. Hope you got something you can use, and I'll be back again next week.